Hello, Freedom Fighters. Thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Go check out the new manifesto on lifestyle design, authored by yours truly, Buy Your Own Island, now available on Amazon. It's been called inspiring and empowering and one of the best new books on entrepreneurship. Lifestyle design for 2015 and beyond. Look for it on Amazon or go download the audiobook for free at buyyourownisland.com forward slash audio dash book. Hey, so welcome to the Open World Podcast. I feel very excited and privileged today to have today's guest on the show. His name is John Lee Dumas, and he's the host of Entrepreneur on Fire. John's entrepreneurial endeavors in the podcasting community are the stuff of legend. He rose quickly through the top of the podcasting world. In March alone, uh, Entrepreneur on Fire pulled in over 230000 in revenue. And I just wanted to welcome you to the show, John. Danny, I am excited to be here, and I wouldn't lie, I'm prepared to ignite. <laughs> <laughs> so travel-wise, um, your international experiences have played a huge role in shaping who you are now. You were in uh, active duty in Iraq, um, and you also traveled to Guatemala and India um, because you, you came back from your tour of duty, and, and you felt like... Uh, what was going through your mind at the time? Like, did you feel like you couldn't uh, readjust to normal life back home? Yeah, it was really one of those things where I had spent pretty much the first 26 years of my life kind of following this predetermined, preset path. And, you know, a lot of us do. I mean, the first 18 years were the typical, you know, high, you know, elementary, high school, et cetera. Then I went off to college on an army scholarship. And then I was in the army active duty for four years from 22 to 26 with a 13 month tour of duty in Iraq. And I kind of got out at 26 and I was like, you know what? I have a little money in the bank. Not a ton, but I have some money in the bank, no debt, thanks to my military scholarship. And I feel pretty worldly on some levels because I, you know, and maybe more domestically because I'd been stationed at a lot of places within the United States. You know, I'd also checked out in-depth Kuwait and Iraq, but under wartime environments, of course. So it was a little different than your typical tourist location. But I felt like I could handle myself. I had been trained, you know, as a combat um, fighter in the military. So I felt pretty comfortable that I could go out there and handle a lot of situations and that I wasn't super naive. So I thought I could take on some challenges. And those challenges were more of the third world countries. You know, a lot of countries that people that I talk to are kind of afraid to go to because they don't really know what to expect. You know, they, they think that things are, are going to potentially be worse than they actually are. So I kind of took that in as a challenge and went to Guatemala for four months, lived with a local family, tried to learn the language. Uh, then I went to India and just traveled the entire country of India with two other guys. And 
um, really, I mean, we're talking the entire country, which is massive. We started at the top, went to, you know, all the way to the East Coast, all the way down the east, or I should say the east eastern side of India, and then all the way down to the southern coast, all the way up the west coast. Uh, into Mumbai. I was in a Bollywood movie, which was a lot of fun. Um, then I ended up by the Pakistan border up in the very northwestern sector of India in a little place called Amritsar. Uh, then I did, then I did Nepal for a month where I hiked, um, the Himalayan mountains, specifically Annapurna, which is the seventh highest mountain in the world. And no, I did not go to the peak. I just went to the base camp, but the base camp is higher than any peak in the lower 48 states, which is pretty crazy. It's like 14,700 um, elevation or something. And, you know, that was a really great, you know, basically eight to 10 months of, of travel, basically out of a backpack. And I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the different cultures in the countries. And it really made me feel like I could kind of take on different challenges in different countries if I ever decided to go that route. So it was that desire for a challenge that uh, motivated these travels and motivated to do all of this. Exactly. I see. Do you have the sense that um, you keep on like pushing a level higher and whatever you do next is going to be greater than what you've already done? Is that what drives you? No, you know, it was kind of a challenge that I wanted to kind of check off. And for me, you know, I was 26, 27, 28 at the time. Like those are the kind of the years that I did a lot of the backpack traveling. And, you know, it was backpack traveling is tough. Like the way that I did it, I did it on a shoestring budget. I was staying in like the, the, the dirtiest and the dingiest and the cheapest hostels and hotels. And, you know, I mean, going to sleep at night, you know, with bugs and lice and just mosquitoes and you name it. I mean, I look back on that and I'm, I can kind of smile, but at the time I was like, you know, oh man, what am I doing? So I'm kind of uh, older now, <laughs> 35 years old, <laughs> and definitely have uh, more wealth than I did um, at that age, 26 through 28. So it kind of, uh, I kind of look back at it, you know, and I'm not going to make any assumptions um, because I, I'm not a Navy SEAL. <laughs> you know, I'm just an Army guy, uh, an army grunt, so to speak. But I kind of think that I look back at that kind of travel, like a lot of SEALs look at training, uh, their SEALs training, like they're glad they did it and they feel proud about it, but they don't want to go through it again because it was pretty brutal. And that was like a lot of my traveling. So I do see a lot of uh, great traveling in my future, but kind of more on the second to first class type travel. Um, you know, I'm not looking to go high roller style, but um, I'm definitely not looking to go, you know, fifth class lower steerage like I did before. <laughs> well, part of the reason why I asked, John, is um, I noticed that uh, some of the most successful people who are doing the most uh, extraordinary things, they usually have the most powerful whys that are driving them. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, what, uh, what is it for you? So for me, my why is that I just see so clearly how limited our time is on this earth. Now, unfortunately, and I do say this because it was unfortunate, you know, I was a platoon leader in charge of 16 men, four tanks in a wartime environment for 13 months. And, you know, I was very unfortunately um, witness to seeing four of my soldiers give the ultimate sacrifice during this war. And so I really saw at, you know, a very up close and intimate level, how quickly life can be snuffed out and really how fragile life is. And, and also I got to see on a lot of levels at the same time, how wide and big this world is. And that, you know, so many of us just live in a tiny little corner of it and kind of make, you know, our little, our little, 
pile of dirt and kind of sit on it. And I just didn't want to do that and kind of look up when I was too old to really enjoy being able to, to walk the streets of Rome or, you know, go down the river uh, in Paris, the Seine. You know, I really wanted to be able to enjoy those experiences when I was still young enough to really enjoy them. And, and you know, that to me can be anywhere between now and, you know, when I am in my 60s or 70s and, and I really do kind of start to, to see some deterioration physically if I'm, you know, that fortunate to even make it that far. So that's just really my why is that I just realize how fragile life is, how fast life is, and that I really want to take advantage of opportunities now in the present and, and not wait for that, you know, in a, you know, for that distant when, when unfortunately, that distant when sometimes never becomes now. That's fantastic. Um, I'm wondering, what have you learned from this journey? Uh, well, actually, I, I want to transition into um, when you started Entrepreneur on Fire. Uh, your, your travel experience helped you to kind of discover the life you wanted to lead. Is that right? You went to law school uh, and you're like, you know, I could do this, but it, it doesn't seem right for me. Uh, what, what did you discover when you went to, I, I mean, when you went to India, like, uh, did, did you meditate? Did you reflect on your life? I did a lot of reflection. You know, I went to India on the heels of quitting law school after just one semester so I was really depressed. I was down and out. I disappointed a lot of people in my family, you know, especially my father and my mother to a, a lesser degree, but still to a, a decent sized degree. And, and I just had to kind of get out there and just kind of say to myself, like, what am I looking for in life? Like, what direction do I want to take? What path do I want to take? And, you know, I'll be honest about the result too. Like I did not come back with an answer and I still struggled for a number of years after that. But I went there, you know, with that desire, with that hope and I did yoga and I did some meditation and I did a lot of thinking and reflecting and it was a good period and it was the start of my journey to get to where I needed to be, you know, but it wasn't the 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 shining aha moment that I kind of went to India looking for and and that's just the truth but you know I will say I look back in India as a great time that I did take myself out of the rushing rapid river of life and I was just off to the side so I can kind of look back at life <clears throat> and my friends that you know were still in that rapid river and seeing you know how much their lives were just flying by them because they had just, you know, got caught up in the currents. You know, they got the mortgage, they have the kids, they have this, they have that, all these responsibilities, and they just have to keep paddling, you know, just to stay afloat. And I was able to kind of step out of that and say, you know, there, there could be a better way for me. I mean, that rapid river, that is for some people. And if you're in that river and, and you're thriving and you're happy, then then I applaud you, but I just wasn't personally in that, in that river. And I stepped out of it and I saw what life could be like outside of that river. And even though I jumped back in a few times, um, in my late twenties and early thirties, I always remembered what it was like being out of that river. And I think that experience was really important. So there was no particular watershed moment. You just kind of, um, went through this catharsis where you had this, I guess it's the dark night of the soul where you're, you wanted to find what aligned with you uh, on a spiritual level, would you say? Yeah, there was no watershed moment within India, but I do think that it started. I do think a little spark was started while I was in India that kind of smoldered for a few years and then mm -hmm. eventually did light into a flame, you know, about four or five years later when the the aha moment for Entrepreneur on Fire hit me. Because, you know, what India did was it did make me realize that I can I can quit anything that I want to quit 
at any time that I want to quit it. You know, whether that be in my next job, which was in corporate finance, whether it be um, my next job, which was for a tech startup in New York City, or then as a real estate agent in San Diego, and then a commercial broker in Maine. Like, I wanted to try these things, but I also realized I could quit these things and that the, the world wasn't going to crumble. And it still never made quitting easy. It was always a struggle and difficult, but at least I knew that it was possible. And I, I think a lot of people don't think and never come to the realization that quitting is actually an option. And I think a lot of people also have it in their head that quitting is always bad because we're kind of taught that from a young age within school. You know, if you quit, you know, quitters never win. Winners never quit. You know, that's like something that you hear growing up. I don't believe in that at all. I believe that you have to quit if you're identifying that you are not going down that river, that path that you know within yourself is right for you. You have to quit. And so many people don't. And then they wake up 50 years later and they say, man, like what happens? Like what happened to my life? Like I just ended up kind of flowing along, not even realizing it in a place I didn't even, even want to be. And, you know, a really revealing book is called the 10 biggest regrets of the dying where this one psychologist went around and interviewed like almost a thousand people who are, um, you know, basically on their deathbed, you know, we're within a couple months of dying and the number one, um, takeaway and response from the people, um, that were, you know, living their last couple months of life was, I wish I had lived my life instead of letting outside external forces dictate my life. And that really hit me hard because, you know, listen, people love you, your parents, your family, you know, your, your significant others, whoever, your friends, they love you. They want the best for you, but that doesn't mean they're going to have the best advice for you. And that best advice for you and the best path for you has to come from within. So, so many times we let other people's expectations, thoughts, wants, desires end up running our entire lives. And sometimes and oftentimes it's too late before we realize it. Yeah, that's some powerful stuff. So 11 regrets of the dying. I'm going to bookmark that and make a note to check that out. So let's try to sum up your uh, own personal journey through this life, because I'm relatively familiar with your travels. One, um, I'm just putting this whole concoction together. One, in the military, you learned uh, discipline. And when you started to, to travel, you were a vagabond, you were a wanderer, <laughs> and you learned, uh, you learned to be open to new experiences as they come. And then third was when you went to India and you were slumming around, is that you overcame that fear that you have anything to lose. And I think that's a big one for, for most people to overcome. I think um, that, that fear, I, I guess you call it uh, the imposter? Yes, the imposter syndrome. How do we uh, overcome the imposter, attain the imposter? Yeah, so actually I think it starts with taking the word overcome and throwing it out the window because I don't believe it's something you ever can overcome. It's part of being a human being. It's part of just the lizard innate brain that we have. We are always going to fear uh, feel fear. We are always going to be scared of the unknown. We are always going to, you know, get terrified when something new comes across our plate. It's just a reality. So let's just accept that as human beings. And then let's say, Hey, what I'm going to do instead is embrace it. Just knowing that every single person is having these fears. And that's what makes us human is are these fears and it's just supernatural. So it's not like 
you alone have a fear of speaking on stage. It's not like you alone are scared of putting yourself out there and, and failing and flopping. And it's not like you alone, you know, have pride. Every single person does. So when we realize that it's not just uh, an individual affliction, but it's instead in a humankind affliction, we can embrace it, not overcome it. We can embrace it, realize it, and just say, hey, this is part of life. Let's just accept life as it is. Let's, let's just embrace this fear for what it is. And now we can rise with it. And so for me, every time I step on stage, I'm still, I still feel, uh, feel fear. That's kind of hard to say, feel fear. I still feel fear. But what do I do? I embrace that fear. And I rise with it, and then I get up on stage and I present. Every time I'm about to launch a new product, I'm scared that people aren't going to like it, that people are going to say bad things about it. But I realize that that is part of what it is to be an entrepreneur, to be a human being. So let's embrace this and just not let it detract from this life that we're living. That was a wonderful answer, John. Thanks, Danny. <laughs> On, on the flip side, um, how do you recommend building the confidence so that you can uh, set yourself up for uh, massive transformation and success? So confidence comes with doing that thing. Now, for me, I, there's a huge quote that I love, and I reference it whenever the time is right. If you want to be, do. I wanted to be a podcaster. The only way for me to be a podcaster, Danny, was to flip in podcast. There is no other way to do it. And so whatever people are listening right now, you can just substitute and just say the word X for whatever it is you want to be. If you want to be X, do X. You know, Stephen King is famous for saying, writers write, Sinatra, singers sing. Guess what? Nobody's good at anything when they start. So therefore, how can you have confidence when you're first starting something? You can't because you're bad. I was a really bad podcaster for a legitimately decent amount of time before I slowly became not so bad and then okay and then eventually became good. And that was by doing that thing over and over again. That is where your confidence is going to grow from. It's not going to be there to start. It's where it's going to grow from. So whatever you want to be, do that thing. Be willing to be bad. Know that Michael Jordan missed his first foul shots. Tiger Woods did not hit a hole in one in his first golf swing. They were bad at basketball and golf when they started because there's no way to be good at these things. You know, everybody says natural this, natural that. Even the naturals had to work hard at the beginning to acquire those skills. That's just a reality. That's just a fact. So that's where the confidence, Danny, in my belief, is going to come from. <laughs> that's, that's so funny you say that, John, because um, I have a personal story. When the first time I heard about you, um, I was at the you know, Del Mar Plaza. Have you been there? Oh, yeah. I was, I was having happy hour with a friend, and he was telling me about this, this entrepreneur on fire. And his, <laughs> I think his words were basically, this guy came out of nowhere, is what yeah. he told me. That's, that's what he said, and I guess that's what it seemed like to the outside world. Uh, but but you're actually saying that it was it was a, a constant ongoing process that took time. Constant ongoing. You know, I, a quote that I yeah. love is that you know, yeah, it was an overnight success. You know, for the last ten years. I mean, it, it, it takes time. Like for me, Entrepreneur on Fire did achieve you know a lot of success fairly quickly when you just look at the snapshot of Entrepreneur on Fire. You know, but it took my four years as an active duty officer and learning what I learned there. It took 
you know, my failure as a, a law student, my failure in corporate finance, you know, my struggles and obstacles and failures and successes, because I, I did have a lot of those in real estate over four years, you know, my travels in Guatemala, my travels in India and Nepal, like it took all of these life experiences to culminate into a 32-year-old who had enough life experience that felt like he could take on a challenge like this. And, and so, yeah, launching Entrepreneur Fire in 2012 and seeing two, $2.75 million in revenue in 2014, that's massive success and that's a rapid growth. But it's not as, as just snapshot as it is in reality. It's, you know, the 10 years before, the full decade before of gaining the necessary life experience to be able to even think that I could do something like this. Wow. <laughs> was, was there a particular moment where you had just like a, a really big win when things really started to ignite and you felt like, um, I could do this? Like, I know you talk about um, the concept of um, you had to build a certain level of critical mass before you could uh, start to really monetize your podcast. But uh, when, when was the biggest, um, when was the moment where you just felt like this was going to work? You know, for me, when I launched, I will say that I launched and it was a really exciting time because it was a unique podcast. Daily hadn't been done before, so there was some buzz around that. And, you know, I, I connected with the right people and the build up to my launch. So a lot of people were promoting it, which was really cool. And I'd say that really the turning point was I can remember being, um, at the Lord of the Rings, I think it was the second one um, back in December 2012, and the movie is about to start. And I got a I got an email from Cliff Ravenscraft, and he said, "John, we just had somebody drop out um, as a podcast speaker at New Media Expo next month. Um, can you fill in for this person? It'll be a solo presentation in a big room. You know, hundreds, if not thousands, of people will be in the audience." And I said, "Wow, six months ago." I went to my first ever conference, Blog World New York City, and now just six months after that, I'm going to be speaking at that same conference. And that's just to me was insane. It was just a really great moment. That's wonderful. Um, how much time do we have here, uh, John? I just actually Skype texted you one minute. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, so I just wanted to get into the next question. Um, I know you're a very big fan of apps, uh, resources and yeah. so on. Um, how, how do we, how do you advise people to build in that leverage to, uh, free themselves up from the chaos so that they can, uh, scale up to the next level and also have time to, to do things like travel? So for me, it's really important to have a team in place. And these days, teams take time to build for sure, but you have to put in that early foundational work. But once you've built the right team, and that team can and should be virtual, especially if you're going to travel, then you are going to be able to access and run that team from you know anywhere you have an internet connection. And that's something that we've done in Entrepreneur Fire that's allowed us to take vacations where we've completely shut off, you know, despite running you know a seven-figure business. And it's been really exciting to see how that team has grown. So I'd really focus on you know finding the right virtual assistants that aren't expen that aren't expensive because cost of living in the places like the Philippines and Pakistan where we have our virtual assistants, um, you know, it's so low that you can run a business with a forty hour a week uh, virtual assistant for very low cost. And is there a particular moment when you know you should uh, bring an assistant on board or, or add team? Yes, day one. <laughs> Day one. <laughs> well, 
John, thank you for this uh, great interview. Um, you shared a lot of great content in such a short uh, time span. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's been fun. Yeah, thank you so much for your time and also for uh, coming on the show. What's next for you? What's next is some travel. <laughs> I'm going to the Philippines, and then I'm going to go to Hong Kong, and then I'm going to go um, potentially to Fiji this coming fall. Wonderful. Well, I hope you have an uh, excellent trip, and um, everyone listening to this, go check out John's podcast, entrepreneuronfire.com, and thank you so much again, John. Thanks, Danny. Appreciate it. Take care.